Welcome to Follow the Science, a podcast about science, medicine, and how to tell the real deal from all the pseudoscience, quackery, and misinformation floating around out there. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And this podcast is the product of a fellowship from the Society for Professional Journalists. In this week's episode, I want to investigate the origins of the pandemic coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. That's been the subject of a lot of conspiracy theorizing involving biological warfare, genetic engineering, international plots. But the real explanation for where the coronavirus came from has been pretty elusive. And while biologists say they think it probably came from a bat, they haven't been able to tell us much about where and how. The closest known viruses do come from bats, but the kinds of bats that harbor these viruses live hundreds of miles away from Wuhan, where COVID-19 was first identified. What is nearby is the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which houses the world's largest collection of bat coronaviruses. It's only been this week that a team from the WHO was finally allowed into China at all, And a lot of scientists I've talked to say they don't think that those investigators will get access to the kinds of places and materials they'll need to solve the mystery of the pandemic's origin. My first guest today is David Sanders. He's a virologist at Purdue University, and he knows something about lab accidents involving viruses because he was on an international inspection team that's gone to labs, including one in Russia, where there was an accidental release of the Ebola virus and a deadly influenza virus. He made it clear from the start that he doesn't think this pandemic has anything to do with a deliberate release of a virus. That, he says, remains in the realm of conspiracy theory. The idea that it was deliberately engineered, you know, through molecular biology, practically zero. He says he doesn't see any compelling evidence yet, at least, that this pandemic is the result of a lab accident, but there is some historical precedent Dangerous viruses have gotten out of labs before. Things are possible. And uh, I'm not somebody who argues, oh, our, our labs are, are airtight and nothing could ever leave and so on, because I know that that's not the case. I've, I've given you, we've discussed two different examples, you know, the influenza one and the Ebola one, where it's clearly not the case. He's talking about two cases he helped investigate as part of that international inspection team. One of those was an outbreak of an influenza virus that's directly descended from the deadly 1918 pandemic flu. This was one that went extinct in 1957, came back in 1977, and was genetically identical to the one back in 1957. And it almost certainly came from a lab. Some people say North China. People told me uh, that they thought it was the lab we actually inspected, Vector, in uh, Siberia, which was the source. Don't have any additional information as to the actual source, but it did seem to originate in, um, you know, eastern Russia, northern China, Siberia being part of eastern Russia. It clearly, no, nobody disputes the idea that it came from a, from a lab. Here's what he said when I asked him about the Ebola outbreak. It leaked out and, a, and a, uh, a woman got infected at the lab, the same lab. That's how I know these stories so well. The, the vector lab that I inspected in Siberia, one of the workers there... Uh, infected herself, and then was allowed to go home and like gather her stuff up. And then she, uh, she eventually died. And we didn't, they didn't notify us like they were supposed to. It leaked out through a medical chat room. 
some yeah. physician, I think a Russian physician said, hey, I've got this patient uh, with Ebola. I was on the team that, you know, that went, to, oh, that was inspecting uh, the Vector lab after this incident. I can't tell you everything about it, but nevertheless, I can tell you, and it's because it's public information, there was a laboratory accident that led to somebody being infected with Ebola and actually leaving the facility temporarily, and uh, they died from it. My next guest is Stanley Perlman. He's a microbiologist at the University of Iowa, a coronavirus expert, and a member of one of two teams that's been put together to investigate the origin of SARS-CoV-2. One of those teams is organized by the WHO, and the other, the one he's on, is associated with the medical journal, The Lancet. He's been spending years studying the other human coronaviruses, ones that cause the common cold and two others that cause really deadly diseases. The original SARS, now sometimes called SARS-1, and a disease called MERS, which stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And so I wondered if we could turn a little bit to the question of where the SARS-CoV-2 might have come from and how it got to humans. I saw an article, I think you were quoted there, talking about how it would be unusual for it to go straight from a bat to a human, that there was probably an intermediate host. And I wondered if you could talk about why that was. There has to be some way for it to figure out how to transmit that well and how to be, to do everything just right, you know, be able to infect the lungs and the upper airways and be able to transmit so readily. So I don't think it's possible to go from a bat, even from an intermediate animal. So what's the alternative hypothesis then? Well, the one that, that I like best is that the virus actually adapted to people in some setting that we haven't figured out yet. So that would imply either that there was a human that was infected and came to the tame to Wuhan or somehow the virus spread, was already adapted to people and then spread uh, within populations, human populations to cause the pandemic that we have now. So in other words, it may have been in a low level in people before it got to Wuhan, that in this sort of smaller group of people, it developed these adaptations? That's just what I'm, that's what I'm proposing as a possibility. From what we know about this virus, if you took, if this virus was confined to only 30 year olds who are infected, the vast majority would handle the virus just fine. We know that 30 year olds do very well with the infection with, uh, I don't know what the mortality is, one in a thousand or less. It, it could certainly circulate and not cause much disease under those settings. Here's where I asked Dr. Perlman about the possibility of a lab origin of SARS-CoV-2. I also asked him about something called gain-of-function research, which, as it sounds, is research in which scientists can try to make a virus even worse. That doesn't necessarily require genetic engineering. There's another way that scientists do this. It's more like a form of selective breeding, where they infect either human tissue or animals that are closely related to humans in a way that might, say, make a bat virus more likely to be able to transmit from human to human. One point he makes really clear is that there's no obvious way to make any of the known bat viruses into something as bad for humans as SARS-CoV-2. He says it would be really hard. Even passing these viruses through human tissues won't necessarily make them good at infecting actual humans. Do you think that there's that there's any reason that we should keep investigating the possibility that it was released from a lab, that it could have been the product of some sort of gain of function research? So I think that uh, to me, those, those two 
points are separate. First of all, in terms of gain of function, I don't know how to do that. Um, as a long-term coronavirologist, I don't know how to make this virus more virulent. So, and I don't think any of my colleagues do either. I mean, do you think it's important to understand where this virus came from? Should there be a team going to, to China to try to put the pieces together? So the, the, you probably know that there are teams doing that. So the WHO has a team of 10 people who are supposed to be doing that. And then the Lancet, I'm on a commission uh, as part of the Lancet probes to various parts of this disease that's supposed to, that is investigating the origins of the disease. That's why the key, I think, is we have to, you have to have access to resources or samples in China. Because I think we, I think China and Southeast Asia, those are the places I'd want to investigate first. There's another kind of clue that investigators can use, antibody tests, also known as serology tests, which can tell them something about who's had the virus in the past. So if they do these kinds of tests on blood samples that have been banked early, say back in 2019, they might be able to learn something about where the virus had been circulating. Perlman says there's some evidence that there were positive antibody tests on banked blood in Europe dating back to 2019. And that warrants further investigation. If it's been simmering in humans and just uh, adapting with some uh, over time, it's possible. So that's why you really want to know more about those samples. Who were they? How good are the tests? There's a lot of things you want to know. And that's, I think that's what at least the Lancet Commission is going to try to do. So what are some of the things that the Lancet Committee is looking into? We'd like to know more about the serology that we talked about in uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia and everywhere else in the world. Uh, we'd like to know uh, more about uh, the exact events in Wuhan uh, that occurred in December and January. Those are very hard to get to get specimens from uh, environmental specimens of those, but everything's gone, you know, the, and there's no infection anymore in China. So it's very hard to trace anything really back. We'd like to have access to laboratories that could have had samples from people who might have had unexpected pneumonia in China or elsewhere in the world, the Wuhan laboratories. I think we'd like to have access to the notebooks in those laboratories and uh, the samples in the laboratory. I have to say, running a lab myself, if anyone wanted to go through my minus uh, 80 freezer where we store our samples, they're welcome to do it because I can't find anything in there. I can't believe anyone else would. Really? They're not, somehow they're not sorted in a way that they're easy to find? Ideally, yes. I would say the same thing about my lab, but in reality, we're just not that good. So they're not, uh, things might not be easy to find there. And so do we know whether that uh, lab in Wuhan actually has samples that are of the the actual live virus that could get out, or do, do they just have nucleic acids of the virus or parts of the virus? No, they would have the virus. They, they would have the virus. Yeah, the person who's getting the most questions is um, a, a wonderful bat virologist. I mean, that's it's it's ironic to me that she's being castigated because, in fact, her collecting viruses uh, gives lets you know what the what bat viruses are doing and how many are out there and can they infect humans. So it gives, you, it gives you, if we had used the information, it might have given us uh, more resources to uh, defend ourselves against this virus when it entered human populations. How dangerous is it to have these types of viruses in your lab? If I was doing that in my lab, they'd all be up in my high security areas. 
And I think that's what she has too. She has even higher security areas than I have. There was, there's a, uh, in the, the uh, SARS investigation, um, David Kwaman, a journalist, went to China with one of the investigative teams and um, and wrote it up in, in his book, Spillover. It was really interesting. And I and I guess after reading that, I wondered why the, the investigation of this has been so different, that there, the, you know, international teams were, were there trying to figure out where SARS came from, you know, fairly quickly. Yeah, well, you know, you just, you have to put the uh, geopolitical problems that we have now that we didn't have in 2003. Right now, there's, uh, there's tons of blame being thrown around and uh, poor communication between the U.S. and China. You know, we, we, the U.S. used to have people from the CDC based in China, and we pulled them out just before the pandemic began. So it's not like we have a strong track record of uh, being a, a help and neutral in this whole thing. No, so so we, we, we pulled people out of the Chinese CDC. Right, exactly. Who were there to help, help the Chinese. People. Yeah, and we decided we, didn't need, we need, didn't need to spend the money anymore because they could do it themselves. My next guest has been looking for clues in the genetics of SARS-CoV-2 and the most closely related bat viruses from China. His name is Rasmus Nielsen, and he's a professor of genetics at the University of California at Berkeley. By comparing the genetics of these viruses, he's been able to come up with an estimate of when they diverged from a common ancestor, kind of the way humans and chimpanzees diverged from a common ancestor a few million years ago. But the viruses, because they reproduce so fast, diverged just a few years ago. He's also studied the genetics of coronaviruses that come from an exotic scaly animal called a pangolin. And those viruses too have some similarity to our pandemic coronavirus. And so is the idea then to try to figure out how this virus came about uh, looking at the most closely related uh, animal viruses, I guess the one in the pangolins and the one in the bats? So we conclude from that that One of them, RTG13, seems to have a divergence time a little bit larger than 50 years. And another one, RMYN02, has a divergence time about uh, 37 years, is our estimates. And so what does this tell you about, and where does the pangolin virus come in? How does that... I mean, the pangolin virus, I would say, is a bit odd, maybe. They're clearly not the ones that are closest related to SARS-CoV-2. So the idea that it came from pangolin, I think, is 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 clearly not true, and I think we can dismiss that. That seems very unlikely. Does your the research in this paper give you an idea of the sequence of events by which SARS-CoV-2 evolved? I don't see any pattern of the DNA sequences that anything different from the normal processes that we see of mutation and natural selection and recombination and so on. Are there uh, genomics studies that you could do that would maybe give us more clues as to when it jumped to humans and how and whether there was an intermediate host? I think if we need to understand this better, that has to be by getting more data on the ground, uh, presumably in China, in Yunnan. He agrees with the other experts that we really need a thorough investigation on the ground in China. I think we all feel that more work should be done in China on trying to find the origins. More sampling there, more international researchers that participate in trying to figure out the origins uh, of the virus. I think we all feel that 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 would benefit science um, if that was the case. Uh, Yeah, I, I wondered if there's any understanding of sort of how a virus that infects bats 
would be able to jump to people and be so transmissible between people? Could Would it have maybe been in people at a lower level for a while and then exploded? Or do you think there's some other way it could have become so adapted to humans? Well, first of all, I mean, the, the zoonotic transfer that's going on here where it jumps from one species to another species, of course, happened all the time. This okay, let's stop for a minute and talk about that terminology. What he just said was that Something called zoonotic transfer happens all the time. That is zoonotic as in zoo, as in animals, as in viruses jumping from one animal to another or other animals to human beings. He says it's unlikely that a bat virus would be particularly well adapted to infecting humans and transmitting from human to human. But such a virus might crop up in bats by luck. That is, good luck for the virus and very bad luck for us. Do you think that there are ways that investigators could tell whether it came from a lab? Are there any kind of telltale signs that could help us decide if that hypothesis is likely? There are some other analysis that you can do that you can look at, try to date the age of the virus and how, you know, uh, and compare that to other viruses. And for example, look at if there's any evidence that it has been in stasis. So you would expect if it's propagated in the lab, maybe it's been in the freezer for, for some years. That might be another type of clue, he says, because viruses mutate all the time in nature at a pretty steady rate, and one that was kept in a lab in a freezer wouldn't. How important is it to get at how this virus came to be? I mean, the general public, people are very interested in it. I mean, I think I, I would say so. I, and I, I do think that there should be more work on this. And I would like to see more openness from China on this issue. You know, I had collaborators in China that couldn't collaborate with me because of the, uh, the policies of the government that you are not allowed to work on the origins of the virus uh, without governmental permission. My understanding is that there's a special committee under Xi Jinping directly under him that needs to approve any research on the origins of the virus. And my feeling for my colleagues in China is that they are not particularly e eager due to these political issues of pursuing this uh, very much. Do you think that the, uh, the WHO group or the Lancet committee will be able to get very far in? Well, so that's the question. That's what we're looking at, right? How much will they get access to? Will they get access mass to medical old medical samples from the area? Will they get access to all lab protocols and, and, and so on, all, all lab books in the Wuhan Institute of Virology? And, you know, those are, I think, the, some of the questions, right? How much of this will be public and open? Do you think that it's even worth spending time worrying about the lab origins theory? Um, do you think that's a, that's a, a worthwhile pursuit to, for some people to continue to investigate that just in case it was something like that? Well, I think we all want to know. So, um, you know, it's this virus has affected us all so much. And so we all want to know as much as we can about the origins, right? Also to make sure that we minimize the risk of something like this happening again. I think that's how many of us feel that way. And so I, I, I that it's not a... Uh, it's not a conspiracy theory. We haven't been given an answer. There's no correct answer yet because we haven't really, the investigation hasn't been done. I, I agree that more, yeah, I would say I would uh, agree with that. I mean, I think the, the problem is that there has been so many that I would call conspiracy theories out there and many strange claims of evidence that it was genetically engineered. I mean, there's been a massive amount of very poor research and and 
very poorly argumented claims about this. People that claim that they have evidence that it was genetically engineered. And I think all of that has been debunked. And so that's important to, to, to think about. And I think the reaction from the scientific community, I think, has been formed by that in part, by all these claims and pseudoscientific studies that make claim about lab origins. And I think that has really harmed the case for a proper investigation because, of course, it does seem a bit to be tin-head science now to claim yes. the origin. Yes. <laughs> That's uh, one way to put it. What he just said was tin-hat science, which I think is short for tin-foil-hat science. And so that association with tin-foil-hat conspiracy theorizing has set back the ability of scientists to answer some really pressing questions about where this virus came from. Because there's a real story there. Something had to happen to start this pandemic. And getting to the bottom of it matters a lot. It matters because we want to prevent this kind of thing from ever happening again. And beyond that, I think people really need to understand what's happening in order to stay engaged in the effort to suppress the pandemic. World governments, after all, are asking a lot of people. And in return, I think we deserve transparency and some answers. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glixman with music by Kyle Imperator. If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Follow the Science.